Podcast family, I'm Chad Bokelman, and welcome to episode number eight of The Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern and Green Arrow. That's right, once again, we are back to talk about the classic series of Green Lantern from the 1970s, written by Denny O'Neill, with art by the incomparable Neil Adams, and edited by the legendary Julie Schwartz. Uh, the series that saved Green Lantern and helped uh, bring about the first major changes uh, to the Comics Code Authority. Um, this time around, we are talking about Green Lantern number 79, or Green Lantern Green Arrow number 79, whichever you want to call it. Uh, let's hop right into it. This, uh, this one features on the cover uh, Hal Jordan strapped to a totem pole, uh, very crucifix style, with Green Arrow uh, aiming a bow at him, a uh, bow and arrow at him, with a um, Native American headdress on, saying, My redskin brothers find you guilty, and I am your executioner. This is one of the more famous uh, covers from the Green Lantern Green Arrow run. I'm pretty sure you've probably seen it. Uh, we open up with uh, Hal, Ollie, and Appa, who is at this point known as the Guardian or the Old Timer. They are sitting around a campfire, uh, when suddenly they uh, hear some footsteps running in the woods and transform and uh, you know transform into their alter egos, they come across these two men who are uh, r- running down a Native American man uh, with guns in their hands. Uh, so they uh, they're aiming them at him, and Ollie and Hal stop them by disarming them. They start trying to f- figure out what's going on. Um, these uh, these two uh, gentlemen, these white guys, uh, say that they recognize Hal and Ollie from uh, the other day. And by the other day, they mean uh, issue number seventy-eight, uh, where they ran, you know, Hal and Ollie, you know, quote, ran those hippies out of town. Um, so they uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on, and, and uh, one of the guys says. Yeah, you're ridding our community of those filthy hippies was a singular service. Perhaps you can aid us further by ridding us of these equally filthy savages. Uh, Ollie is dis- obviously disgusted by this. Hal's trying to figure out what's going on. The uh, the Native American guy says, I'll tell you, this fancy pants is Theodore Pud. He runs the Lumberman's Union, and the other specimen is Pierre O'Rourke. He's been claiming to own the trees. He says, claims I do own them. And he said, uh, the Native American responds and says, A hundred years ago, the chief of our tribe, Ulysses, Ulysses Starr, made a deal with Washington. We wouldn't hassle the white settlers if we could have exclusive rights to the lumber. The government's record of the deal got lost. Our record, our local record, was mysteriously destroyed. Hal asks uh, Mr. Pud what his issue is with the tribe. Uh, and he says simply that they want to join my organization and I dislike animals. This creature was on Pierre's property. We shoot trespassers. Hal turns to the Native American and says, Legally speaking, uh, your case is a little shaky. There's nothing I can do. Uh, are there any other, you know, copies of the transaction? Uh, you know, basically the transaction between the Native Americans and Washington a hundred years ago. And he says that uh, just one belonging to Ulysses Starr's son, Abe, but he took it with him. To the city 20 years ago, nobody's heard from him since. Uh, Hal's like, well, there's nothing I can do. And Ollie says, the heck there isn't. We can stay. We can fight. We're going. We're supposed to be good at fighting, remember? 
And Hal gets fed up, says, I'm getting tired of your lording it over me with your moral superiority routine. You want to break the law, go ahead, but count me out. So they split off, and this is where I'll get a little more uh, condensed in the uh, retelling of everything. Well, they split off, and we follow. First, follow Hal as he goes to talk to Old Timer and tells him what's going on. Uh, Old Timer is going to stay in town and ace, uh, assist Black Canary with uh, working on, you know, working with the children on the reservation. So Hal's, Hal goes to Evergreen City uh, to find Abe Starr, the, star, the son of Ulysses Starr. Uh, he goes and finds a record of a, uh, of a lease on a, on a rent in the tenement down by the docks. He goes to find that tenement. He shows up. He in the tenement, uh, the very specific one he's looking for, is on fire. He rushes in. He finds uh, an old man, brings him out before the building collapses. Uh, he, the old man is resuscitated with some oxygen because he inhaled a lot of smoke. Before he's taken off to the hospital in an ambulance, Hal asks him uh, a couple of questions. If First, if he is uh, Abe Starr, uh, he confirms that he is. And Hal says, do you have any documents, any legal papers? Um, and the guy says, I had a whole box full, including some stupid deed, to a lot of trees. A few minutes ago, I watched them burn. So Hal leaves and can't figure out what to do, and then he goes, remembers he has a friend in, in Congress, Congressman Sullivan, so his next stop is Washington. So he flies off in the snow towards Washington. Back in uh, the, 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 the town, uh, the, the Indian town, uh, Ollie walks up on Dinah as she's treating uh, one of the children. Um, you know, she says she's got to do this to help get her head together. And she says, "I can't forget that I almost shot you." And he says, "Well, you should. You were hypnotized, not in your right mind," which seems kind of counterintuitive to what he was telling her last issue that she was partly to blame for it because there was something in her that connected with uh, <laughs> the man, uh, the very uh, <laughs> Charles Manson-like man from the last issue. But anyways. You know, uh, Ollie says, you know, what do these people need? Do they need food? They're, they need medicine. You've been speaking with them for a while. What's your what's your diagnosis? And she says, they've been under the white man's heel for so long they've lost faith in themselves. They no longer believe in themselves as a tribe, a society, or even as human beings. Uh, she says, I can't suggest anything to help that. He says, maybe I can. A few hours later, we see a couple of locals, uh, local white men trying to break into uh, Indian-owned uh uh, an Indian-owned farm that's been fenced off that has some watermelons, so they're going to break in and, um, you know, take some of these watermelons. One of the guys, as he's eating one of the watermelons, says, you know, maybe we shouldn't stay here. It is the engine property. He says, so freaking what? Redskins ain't going to hassle us. Uh, and then uh, an arrow shoots the, uh, some watermelon out of his hand, uh, and we see that a yellow, goldish-clad, uh, glowing uh, Native American is... Uh, telling them to get lost, basically. They show up to a uh, local lumberman's hangout, tell them that they saw a ghost, they're being chided, and all of a sudden an arrow shoots through their upraised uh, mugs of beer, uh, and uh, this uh, ghostly apparition says, stop, you know, stop persecuting my people. They go outside to check on it, he's gone. One of the Indians, who is uh, the Native Americans, who's working at the Lumberman Tavern as a, a janitor or, or something to that effect runs off scared to tell the tribe about it. They tell him he's been seeing things and then the apparition appears again, saying that he is the ghost of Ulysses S. Star, uh, Chief Ulysses. And uh, they say, you know, you're no, one of them says, you're no more the ghost of Chief Ulysses than I am sitting bull. And uh, the apparition says, whether or not what I, uh, I'm what I appear to be isn't important. 
but what I represent is you were once a proud people, a great people, and you can be again. First, though, you have to stop playing doormat for Oroke and Oroke and Pud and be willing to fight for your rights. In a few hours, Oroke's mob will be taking your trees unless you stop them. I may be a ghost, or I may not. In either case, the spirit of your former greatness is in your hearts. Ulysses Star is still alive. Uh, and uh, it's in that little speech we get a couple of hints that this may not be who he appears to be. Uh, the next morning, the uh, lumbermen and the uh, Native Americans go up against one another, uh, you know, kicking and punching and swinging, you know, bits of log and, and stuff like that. Uh, one of them is about to uh, hit one of the Native Americans with an axe, and the apparition of Ulysses Star interferes, and right as he does, uh, Green Lantern shoots a power-beamed wall in between them to stop things. Uh, he says he's brought the U.S. Representative Sullivan. He's going to look into the tribe's claims until he does go home. And then Ulysses Star, the ghost, says, Sure, go on home, sit on your hands like always. Be nice while you're being robbed blind. Can it, Lantern? Go crawl back to your pals, the Guardians. Uh, Hal says that sounds like a challenge, and he says, Darn right it is. I figured you might show and might start uh, and start slinging that power beam, so I prepared. My costume is yellow. Your ring is useless against me. You want to mix it without your ring? Hal takes off his ring. The Ulysses star drops his bow. They start swinging at each other, and they get tackled into the water of the river behind them, or the stream behind them. Uh, as they're punching in things, uh, they tear off one another's mask, uh, and... Uh, uh, Ulysses Star is revealed to be, of course, none other than Oliver Queen. As they're fighting, they dislodge a few logs stacked up behind them. It knocks them both in the head and out, uh, and they are dragged up to shore. Uh, and later on, they're talking about what's going on. Um, and uh, Ollie says, you know, I figured a, a symbol like Ulysses Star appeared and put some starch into the tribe. Because blast it, they're fine and they can be best. And, you know, one of the Native Americans say, and you succeeded, I'm going to go with Representative Sullivan. I'm going to make Congress listen. Um, one of the other uh, Native Americans is kind of doubtful on it. Uh, and, you know, saying, you know, the judicial process isn't going to do anything. And then the congressman overhears this and says, the judicial process is slow, I admit. But in some cases, it's far-reaching. Come on out here. The, a confessed arsonist in Evergreen City has implicated Oroke, Oroke and Pud in a tenement fire. Says they hired him. So it's revealed that they're responsible for the tenement fire. Abe, uh, Abe Starr's tenement, who had the last surviving document, so, you know, obviously they were trying to take him out, so, you know, there's, there's some evidence there to help support their claim on the land and the lumber. Uh, later on, Hal and Ollie are sitting beside the fire, uh, in the campsite with, uh, with, uh, uh, old-timer, and Hal says, we had a real down-home brawl, Oliver, but we didn't settle anything, did we? Oliver says, I guess not. The problem still exists, and nobody has a solution. And the Guardian says, I disagree. If you did not settle the matter, you at least learned. You learned that the, the strife which rends your nation, your world, must cease. Sooner or later, humanity must stop hitting, killing, which led to hatred and bloodshed. I pray you find the splendor in yourselves before it is too late. And then it ends with a uh, view of them in their uh, the landscape, a wide shot of them at the campfire falling asleep by the fire. And the uh, quotes come from The Armies of the Night by Norman Mailer. And it says, Deliver us from our curse, for we must end on the, ro on the road to that mystery where courage, death, 
and the dream of love give promise of sleep. That is Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 79. Um, uh, a few things, personally, about this. Some people uh, in the past have criticized me of uh, and others uh, on the show of making it about them and not about the matters of the show. But uh, since this is my podcast, uh, my spinoff, I feel it important every now and then to let you guys know when it re- something relates to me personally. Uh, let me let you know my personal connection. And long ago, of course, I made the uh, the personal connection on you know being interested in all things uh, 60s and 70s pop culture related, uh, including the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, and and why that was important to me, and you know the music of that time, and how that reminded me of my father, and you know things like that. Uh, I feel it also uh, uh, my personal interest in this particular story because. I feel a, a, a kinship uh, with the, the Native American culture, uh, mostly because uh, of, of uh, my lineage. Uh, my dad's great-grandmother, so my great-great-grandmother, who is the uh, grandmother of, uh, of my father's mother, so my grandma, sorry, that's a, I know that's a little confusing, but you, you, you get what I'm saying, is actually or was actually full-blooded Cherokee. Um, and for a time, my father went to live with her when he was uh, younger. Or I can't remember if he told me he went to live with her or if he stayed with her for an extended period of time. Uh, like when I was little and several of my cousins on my father's side were little, we would all go up to Big Spring, Texas to spend the summer uh, or part of the summer with our grandparents and each other so that, you know, the parents could have a little bit of time to themselves during the summer. Um, and I think my father might have had a similar tradition when he was young uh, in my, uh, my grandmother taking him, uh, uh, taking him to her grandmother, uh, her grandmother's house uh, for some, you know, visiting and stuff like that. But I am part Cherokee. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, like I said, my, uh, my grandmother's grandmother was full-blooded Native American Cherokee and my father used to tell me stories of interacting with her, and she taught him how to do a traditional rain dance, which he then taught my sister and I, um, uh, and and things like that. Not necessarily a, a chant, but what it means to be connected to the earth and, uh, you know, respect your surroundings and, and things like that. Um, now, obviously, a lot of people in America have uh, mixed uh, backgrounds. Uh, they have a lot of people have uh, in, uh, Native American in their background, uh, in their genetics, and uh, it's not like I'm claiming any sort of uh, special, you know, my percentage is bigger and I feel of spiritual connection and or anything like that. It's just that uh, because of my father's stories and the things he taught us growing up, uh, as a result of his being exposed to his, uh, his uh, uh, great-grandmother, uh, you know, kind of makes it a li- just, you know, slightly more personal to me. Uh, and, you know, kind of growing up, uh, I was also in, heavily involved in the Boy Scouts, and the things I learned in Boy Scouts and, and uh, you know, later on, uh, uh, you know, from Cub Scout to full-blooded, you know, full full Boy Scout level, uh, combined with the things my father told me uh, and my sister growing up kind of, you know, made me a little more connected to the things around me, and, and I feel like a, a little bit of a, a kinship uh, with, with Native Americans. So um, this sort of resonates with me, and, and as, as I imagine it does, uh, a lot of people, not just who have 
uh, a lineage connected to the Native American uh, side of things. Um, I'm not sure if my mother has any uh, Native American uh, blood on her side. I'm assuming she might, based on the uh, location of her family in the in the Midwest. So it's it, I'm assuming it, it might be possible, but I don't know. Um, but anyways, um, you know the 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 story of the uh, Native Americans uh, in modern America are are uh, are not uh, a secret. <laughs> you know it's it's well known that the Native Americans had uh, a lot of struggles. Uh, and as you, as you well know, I like to, you know, uh, browse uh, the social issues inherent in each, each uh, issue of Green Lantern and Green Arrow because, you know, the, the Green Lantern and Green Arrow series, of course, as, always, as I've stated before, is a running commentary uh, on the social issues of the time. And this issue is no different. Um, this takes place, obviously, heavily uh, influenced by the Native Americans uh, and uh, kind of deals with, with their struggle with land rights and being treated as equals. Um, so I looked up, uh, uh, you know, Native Americans in the 1970s and, and see what I came up with. Well, um, what I came up with was a group called AIM, A-I-M, uh, that it stands for the American Indian Movement. Uh, and just... Uh, I, I gathered several things that the papers uh, that you hear turning uh, right now are from a printout, um, several printouts that I've stapled together in a packet-like form. So if you'll bear with me, I want to read through a few of the historical uh, things here. Uh, founded in 1968, the American Indian Movement, AIM, is an organization dedicated to the Americans. Native American Civil Rights Movement. Its main objectives are the sovereignty of Native American lands and peoples, preservation of their culture and traditions, and enforcement of all treaties with the United States. Now, it was founded in 1968. One of the things I wanted, to, I normally bring up towards the beginning of the show, what was, what is, uh, uh, neglected to mention until now, was that the cover date for Green Lantern number 79 was September of 1970. But thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, I was able to uh, ascertain that the actual on-sale date, the day that it hit stands, was July 14th of 1970. So um, AIM was founded in 1968, two, two years prior. Uh, so the Native American... Uh, uh, movement, the uh, Indi American Indian movement was uh, very new, very fresh, and gaining a lot of ground and uh, uh, coverage uh, at the time. Now, just so I can uh, uh, get you guys a little bit of background, because I do not claim to be an expert on these matters, particularly considering that I just researched them today uh, and just read about them today. But uh, so I rely on the facts in front of me to to help illuminate you guys. So forgive me if a lot of what I'm doing is reading rather than commenting. But I just thought I'd help educate you guys a little bit. Prior to the formation of AIM, issues involving U.S. Indian non-Indian relations had largely faded away. Starting in the 1950s, the U.S. government had embarked on a serious policy plan to terminate its responsibilities to Native Americans pursuant to uh, extant treaties and agreements. This action included the relocation of thousands of reservation Indians to urban areas and the termination of federal duties to two major tribes. 
the Menominee of uh, Wisconsin and the Klamath of Oregon. Federal rights were restored to both a few years later. However, by the 1970s, relocation as well as termination policies were all but abandoned. A number of problems arose when Native Americans left the reservations and intermingled with local towns, where Native Americans allegedly caused and or became parties to local disturbances or crimes. Moreover, after World War II and the Korean War, many Native Americans who had served in the armed forces no longer wanted to return to stereotypical Indian lifestyles. As more intermingling and merging occurred, other Native Americans became increasingly intent on searching for their cultural roots and maintaining their ethnic identities. They vowed not to be assimilated, and thus their views paralleled the ideas of other civil rights movements of the era. The most radical elements to emerge from these militant uh, Native American groups ultimately formed the AIM, which was intended as an indigenous version of the Black Panther Party. Okay, um, so this was published in July, uh, on, on sale in July of 1970. Therefore, I can only tell you, uh, with relevance to this particular issue, AIM's largest uh, um, event uh, that they had prior to the publication of this issue. AIM actually uh, had several different things that went on uh, after the publication of this issue, actually as early as November of 1971, a year later, um, called The Trail of Broken Treaties. They also occupied the village of Wounded Knee. Uh, they uh, had an event in 1975 at Pine Ridge um, uh, and several other things uh, in their history. But the one of note here took place on November 9th of 1969. Uh, what happened is that a group uh, from AIM uh, uh, actually claimed and occupied Alcatraz Island. So let me read this to you. On November 9th, 1969, a group of Native American supporters led by Mohawk Richard Oakes chartered a boat and set out to symbolically claim the island of Alcatraz for Indians of all tribes. By November 20th, the gesture had turned into a full-scale occupation that ultimately became the longest prolonged occupation by Native Americans of a federal facility or federal property. Uh, uh, it goes on to tell you about the history of Alcatraz and how it was used by Native Americans uh, in the area at the time as a, uh, as a place for ostrac ostrac uh, ostrac being ostracized uh, and, and, and punishment for their for locals. But it was you know a land used by the, the local Native Americans uh, you know long long time ago. Many of the Indian occupiers of November 1969 were students re recruited by Oaks from UCLA, who returned with Oaks to Alcatraz to, and began to live on the island in old federal buildings. They ran a school and daycare center and began delivering local radio broadcasts that could be heard in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, side note, I will be trying, after I finish recording this, I'm actually going to try and find the... Uh, any of those recordings, but uh, I sort of doubt I will find them. Uh, but if I do happen to f stumble upon any audio uh, from that time, I will add it in after the credits. So keep an ear out for that, but uh, you know, don't expect uh, 
I did not promise that, because uh, I have yet to look that up. But I will try. Uh, initially, the federal government placed an effective barricade around the island and insisted that the group leave. It did, however, agree to an Indian demand for formal negotiations. The talks accomplished nothing, however, as the Indian group insisted on a deed and clear title to the island. The group continued occupation, and the federal government insisted they depart but took no aggressive action to remove them. Officially, the government adopt adopted a position of non-interference in hope that support for the occupation would fade. The FBI and Coast Guard were under strict orders to remain clear of the island, and media attention began to dwindle. Uh, that implies that media attention was quite heavy when this first uh, started at the end of 1969 and early 1970. Uh, the occupation continued all through 1970, but by this time, internal problems among the indigenous group caused the occupation to lose momentum. Student recruits left to return to classes at UCLA and were replaced by urban recruits, many of whom had been part of the San Francisco drug and hippie culture of the time. Several rose in opposition to Oak's leadership on the island, and Oak's ultimately left after his teenaged stepdaughter fell to her death in a building stairwell. Uh, so conditions were deteriorating. After several months of hostile occupation, the federal government shut off electric power to the island and removed the water barge that had been supplying fresh water to the occupiers. A fire broke out, and both sides blamed the other for the loss of several historic buildings. Splintered leadership on the island resulted in the loss of a common voice with which to negotiate with the government. When the occupiers began stripping the remaining buildings of copper wiring and tubing, the press turned on them and began publishing stories of assaults, drugs, violence, and the trial of three Indians found guilty of selling 600 pounds of copper. With government patience growing thin, then-President Richard Nixon finally approved a peaceful removal plan to be conducted with as little force as possible and when the least number of people were on the island. On June 10th of 1971, FBA agents, armed federal marshals, and special forces police removed five women, four children, and six unarmed men from the island. So, the Native American occupation of Alcatraz in the late 1969 and throughout 1970 obviously was a major uh, thing that would have been happening and been on the news all across the country at the time. Uh, and self, you know, I, I don't know if they would self-proclaim, call them self-proclaimed hippies, but uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams definitely, you know, being comic writers and being heavily involved in uh, the social elements of the time, more specifically Denny O'Neill, obviously would have this uh, occupation of Alcatraz at the forefront of the social injustices on their minds. Um, and it's not a surprise that they would uh, talk about it. Um, and uh, being hippies, or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, siding with Native Americans not just uh, for being treated poorly, but also for their... Uh, rights to the land and the fair treatment of lumber and their respect of, you know, Mother Earth and stuff would obviously line up very well with the, uh, you know, kind of hippie mentality. So it's not really a surprise that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams uh, found and took issue with the, um, the Native American concerns uh, and made an issue all about it. Uh, technically, uh, two issues, kind of, since they... Uh, actually took the time to set up the uh, the problem in issue number 78 prior to this issue. Um, so they made sure to plant the seeds. 
Um, and just to let you guys know, uh, at the time, the, uh, uh, the 1970s uh, Native American power movement um, had a lot of ground and had a lot of steam, not just for the rights of these people, uh, you know, having men, you know, Native Americans, you know, they were here first. Uh, some places it's called homesteaders' rights. Um, you know, but also with how they were treated. And from a website called Digital History, I pulled this bit of information. And again, I apologize that I'm reading to you more than uh, uh, commenting, but I, I, I find this uh, very enlightening and, um, and uh, helpful in understanding the Native American position of the times. Uh, during the late 1960s and early 1970s, a new spirit of political militancy arose among the first Americans, just as it had among black Americans and women. No other group, however, faced more severe problems more severe than Native Americans. Let me repeat that. No other group faced problems more severe than Native Americans. Throughout the 1960s, American Indians were the nation's poorest minority group, more deprived than any other group, according to virtually every socioeconomic measure. In 1970, the Indian unemployment rate was 10 times the national average, and 40% of the Native American population lived below the poverty line. In that year, 1970, Native American life expectancy was just 44 years, a third less than that of the Amer average American. In one Apache town of 2,500 on the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona, there were only 25 telephones, and most homes had outdoor toilets and relied on wood-burning stoves for heat. This is 1970. Conditions on many of the nation's reservations were not unlike those found in under underdeveloped areas of Latin America, Africa, and Asia. The death rate among Native Americans exceeded that of the total U.S. population by a third. Death, deaths caused by pneumonia, hepatitis, dysentery, strep throat, diabetes, tuberculosis, alcoholism, suicide, and homicide were 2 to 60 times higher than the entire U.S. population. Half a million Indian families lived in unsanitary, dilapidated dwellings, many in shanties, huts, or even abandoned automobiles. Um, so, yeah. That, those were, uh, not only do the Native Americans uh, have a, uh, a legitimate case uh, for their... Uh, uh, homesteaders' rights, or, or whatever you'd like to call it, in relation to them being their first, and these lands were occupied by their people, and, and so on and so forth, they were be true, being treated extremely, extremely poorly uh, in the 1970s. So, I think it's, uh, I think it's important that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams in this issue not only took time to address their rights as a people uh, in in the area in which they grew up and that their their tribe has history, but also showcased the poor treatment and uh, and 
and uh, downright hostility Native Americans faced. Um, they, uh, the gentleman named Pud in this issue, uh, you know, at one point calls them, you know, things, animals, uh, savages, that whole thing. Um, and the word redskin is used, and that word has come up recently in, uh, in, in some issues. Um, but, uh, uh, they really showcased the, uh, the full range of, uh, of issues, uh, facing the, the Native American people in the early 1970s. Um, and, you know, even down to what Dinah says, uh, to Oliver, uh, it's not just that, you know, they need food and, and water and medicine. They, their spirit is quite literally broken. Um, a lot of them have simply give, given in, and, and those that have not given in have, you know, become sort of aggressive because nobody's listening. Nobody cares. Um, and they're be treated, being treated as less than human. Um, so how can we expect anything from them other than either total opposite ends of the spectrum, either complete uh, ascension to whatever's going on because they just, their spirit is gone, or hostility because, you know, that's the only way they figure that they're being listened to. Um, so even though it's a comic book, even though it's the early 1970s, uh, even though so, uh, severe social issues cannot be conquered in the pages of a single comic book, um, despite the limitations of the time and of the medium, I feel that issue 79 um, really showcased an, an issue, a, a, an issue that was heavily in the forefront of the people uh, in America at the time, uh, that brought some, shine some light on some things, maybe, causing people to dive a little bit more, uh, into the issues, uh, in, in the particular, uh, issue. Uh, although, you know, maybe because it's the early 1970s, some people might have dismissed it. Um, you know, Native Americans are, uh, traditionally in, in, in earlier times, uh, in, in pop culture, you know, um, satirized. Um, maybe they saw this uh, as Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams finally going all bleeding heart liberal, uh, going full hippie uh, in in there, and, and that this was more of Denny and Neil trying to assert their hippie mentality uh, or whatever, uh, rather than showcase an actual issue. I don't know. I, I wasn't around in the 1970s. Uh, and I don't own the physical copies of these issues. I do own a couple of issues from the Green Lantern, original Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, but not these particular ones. Um, so I don't have access to, like, the letters columns uh, that were published uh, in reference to these issues. Uh, I'm assuming the letter column to uh, this particular issue, number 79, will probably be printed in number 81 or 82, uh, of the series, but I, you know, I don't know. Maybe that stuff can be found online, and uh, as a matter of fact, now that I talk about it, I think I'll actually make an effort to find those. I apologize that I haven't done that up until now, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely get on that. So, let me, uh, let me look into that, and uh, before we end the episode, 
I always tell you guys how it relates to the comics code of the time and the uh, the things that were addressed um, in the issue that maybe shouldn't have been according to the comics code authority. Uh, and again, another gentle reminder that the first edition of the Comics Code uh, was adopted on October 26th of 1954 and was not revised until 1971. Again, this issue of Green Lantern, Green Arrow hit stands in July of 1970. So these 1954 guidelines are still in effect as of this issue. The first one that this uh, comic could particularly maybe address based on, again, how you, how you interpret law or rules, uh, a loose interpretation, you know, could it be stretched to uh, suit your needs, as it were. The first one it could uh, come under, the Code for Editorial Matter, uh, General Standards Part A, Section 6. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. What is good? What is evil? Legally speaking, towards the beginning of the issue, the uh, Native Americans had no rightful claim to the lumber. Okay, are we defining good as also being 100% legal? Just because it, it's legal doesn't mean it's good. That, uh, again, how you, how you interpret things uh, could you know, go one way or another with this. Additionally, General Standards Part C, Section 3, in regards to dialogue. Although slang and colloquialisms are acceptable, excessive use should be discouraged, and wherever possible, good grammar shall be employed. Uh, again, in this issue, there were instances of people referring to the Native Americans as Indians, and saying, you know, let's go get them, as in G-I-T. Um, and, you know, saying things like them, as in, like, E-M, as opposed to T-H-E-M. You know, things like that. Now, that could be used just sparse, sparse, uh, sparsely throughout the issue, so that they could, you know, kind of showcase the area in which this is taking place, rather than, you know, slang or, or anything like that. Uh, maybe this is in reference to tradition, you know, slang, um, as opposed to uh, local accents. I don't know. But again, it's all in how you interpret the rules. And additionally, and I believe this is the last one I marked here. Yes? Okay. Under, again, General Standards Part C, Part 1 under Religion, the only entrance under Religion, ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group is never permissible. The Lumberman Union is attacking the local Native Americans. Is it a religious group? Is it a racial group? It's definitely a racial group. Is it a religious group? Given their high spirituality and connectedness with nature? Could be. I like to think the Native American lifestyle is a sort of, uh, a one of, I wouldn't say organized religion, but definitely spirituality in terms of if it's, you know, traditionally applied. I think it's definitely could be considered religious. But ridicule or even attack is never permissible. It happens throughout this comic. That's the most clear one. Again, all these other ones 
uh, or the two other ones that I've I've read could be you know just kind of case by case how you apply the rules. This one is very strict. You know, <laughs> ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group is never permissible. It happens all throughout this issue, but it showcases a point. So, is having this comics code rule in place a good thing? You're showing us a moral failing in our society that's happening at the time. The benefits outweigh the negative, immediate negative of being shown that violence. You're being exposed to the issue. It is being put in the forefront of your mind, so maybe you go out and learn more of it, and maybe you do something about it. Now, obviously, it's not extreme violence. Nobody gets their head cut off. Uh, an axe is raised to almost chop, you know, uh, you know, hit a, a Native American uh, blade first in the face, maybe, but, you know, that doesn't actually happen. But it, it's implied that had Ulysses Starr slash Oliver Queen slash, you know, and then Green Lantern later not showing up, that someone could have died. It might have happened. So, is it necessarily wrong that they showed that violence? and that animosity towards this racial group if it exposed a problem and a moral failing in our society. I don't know. Again, it's all in how you interpret it. And, you know, given the um, the uh, animosity towards the comics industry in the, early, the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, maybe it wasn't really there as heavily in the 1970s, but again, these rules were not revised until 1971. So maybe they were getting a little looser in terms of enforcing them, but still, overall, these rules were supposed to be enforced. But here, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams go again, uh, and Julie Schwartz, too, because he's the editor approving all this stuff, um, are showing the people that you know some things need to be addressed, and we can't really address them properly if we're restricted like this. So... Um, yeah, great issue, great issue. Uh, overlooked, I think, as one of the great issues of the Green Lantern, Green Arrow run. Again, because of the uh, campiness, the uh, satire way that the Native American population uh, is uh, presented in pop culture. Uh, maybe not specifically in the 1970s, but uh, you know, prior to the 1970s. Um, I think when it comes to the... Uh, ethnic and racial movements of the civil rights movements uh, of the 60s and 70s, uh, the Native American movement gets over, uh, overshadowed and uh, crowded out by the, uh, the the civil, the more traditional civil rights movement as we know happened in the 1960s and stuff. Martin Luther King and African Americans and stuff, the Black Panther Party and things like that. And to be honest with you, I did learn about the Native American stuff. Um, in school, uh, I kind of vaguely recall it, but it seems like things are more pounded into our head about the uh, the civil rights movement as it was with the African Americans, as opposed to uh, the Native Americans' uh, civil rights movement. Because while we did learn about it, it seems that more focus was given to uh, the Native Amer the African American movement as opposed to the Native American one in the 1970s. Um, so, uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I kind of even forgot that there was, 
Not that, not forgot that there was a problem. I know there was a problem. I've always known that there's a problem in the history of, of the United States with regards to our treatment of Native Americans. But, um, you know, kind of forgot how pronounced it was and how bad things were uh, for that group. So, uh, yeah, maybe there needs to be some more attention put on that. But anyways... Uh, that is it for this episode, guys. Again, I am sorry that there was more reading uh, and uh, education than there was my commentary on things, but hopefully that worked out for you guys. Uh, so if you guys want to contact us, lanterncast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Twitter, and use the hashtag GLCast to find us on both. You know, just search LanternCast on those social media platforms, and you will find us there to like or follow. Uh, and when again, when you t- uh, talk about us, use the hashtag GLCast uh, uh, to talk about us. Uh, we are actually on Instagram, too. This is the first uh, episode we can officially announce that. I have created an Instagram account for us. Again, just search LanternCast. You'll find us. Uh, and I'm posting things. I'm posting album art uh, for every episode. Uh, and I actually posted a couple images that I was uh, today that I was actually you know researching this issue uh, for posting later on. So, you know, every now and then you might get a little peek into the future of what's coming on the LanternCast. So that might be awesome for you as well. Um, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram... Uh, we, uh, again, email lanterncast at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail, 708-LANTERN. That's 708-LANTERN. Uh, there's a time limit of three minutes on that, but uh, that's plenty of time. If you have any comments, questions, anything like that, definitely send those to us, 708-LANTERN. Uh, and uh, let us know what you guys think. We love hearing from you guys. We haven't got a whole lot of feedback uh, recently. So, um you know, we, we miss you guys, and we want to hear from you guys and, and know what's going on. So uh, give us a call, 708-LANTERN, or email us, lanterncast at gmail.com. Let us know what you're thinking about these episodes uh, and what you got going on and, and what you're interested in, uh, and we will definitely get back to you. So look forward to hearing from you guys, and I will see you next time. Bye. <laughs> We feel that this position has so solidified amongst the Indian people here that there's no way that we'll ever change our stance here. Uh, We also feel that the federal government will never be able to grasp the fact that it is legally our right to have an independent nation within the boundaries of the USA and that they will possibly tonight Uh, start an armed invasion of our nation and at that time you know we know that
they have the armed force strength, they have the might to overwhelm our tiny nation. All the American Indian Movement people here and the Oglala Sioux people that are here defending this this nation have decided that we'll never leave and that we'll fight here to the last man. And we feel that it's incumbent upon all the people of this country to to rally themselves to the issue of freedom of a people and try to stop their own government from committing another reoccurrence of the 1890 <laughs> massacre. Uh, of Indian people. We think that if, if the support comes with each person supporting us in his own particular way, that our nation will be able to stand strong and then eventually our people will, all over this United States, win the freedom that they've been fighting for so long.